Welcome to Movies. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com slash lowres and you will get a free audiobook or two free audiobooks if you know how to properly scam the system. This is the first episode of Movies for 2020. I'm going to declare it season three. I am now living in New York City. I have a brand new apartment and that is mostly why I have been away. I haven't released really anything as far as this podcast goes or the YouTube channel or or hardly really been on social media compared to what I normally am. It's just been all-consuming in addition to prepping for my first feature film, which I begin shooting in a little less than three weeks. I go back to Massachusetts. I'm heading up to Manchester to knock out some shoots there. There has just been a lot on my plate in general. Anyway, I did release a list on my website, which you can read and follow along with at lores.live which for some reason or another, Facebook and Instagram have declared a fatwa on, on my website. They think it's a threat. They think it's a, it needs to be extinguished. They think I'm probably fishing people because it ends in a dot live because I can't imagine that I've said anything too provocative that would land me on anybody's list. Uh, but you can go and read my list right now if you don't want to listen to this podcast. Lowres.live slash 2019. You will get my top... 23 films, actually. I decided to do... Well, here's the thing. I had a top 25 list. But then I was like, do I really like these two movies in the top 25 as much as I thought I did when I first watched them? No, I I don't know if I do. So I decided to remove them and just keep it a top 23 as opposed to uh, tacking on two other films. And I I will be uh, reading the full list of 10 tonight and i'll probably give the notable mentions the golden globes were just the other day ricky gervais decided to do another run as host and he has declared that it was his last go around as host which is uh, you know very plausible based off of the the jokes that were that were dealt to the audience in that ceremony it was actually a very watchable very good golden globes we haven't had a a single watchable award ceremony in quite some time. And I have to say, if the Golden Globes were like that every year, not just Ricky Gervais. Ricky Gervais was excellent. Um, but just the unpredictability and also the uh, the overall quality of each of the nominees, then I would be a habitual viewer. I would tune in every year. Now, the Oscars, they haven't really cued into uh, uh, what needs to be done here, trying to repel uh, all the uh, cancer that is consuming them and the negativity that surrounds the Hollywood elites and just our, our growing disgust for them by the day. Uh, getting Ricky Gervais in there to poke fun at them uh, was, a, was a breath of fresh air in many regards. But the Oscars don't want any of that. They are a classy ceremony. They, they can't have uh, Epstein jokes on the stage. Certainly not, no. So they're not going to do a host this year, just like they didn't do a host last year because they attacked Kevin Hart for a tweet he was already attacked over. And we know that story, so we're not even going to talk about it. But the Golden Globes were had, and we saw 1917, and I believe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, win the Best Picture Awards. Joaquin Phoenix won for Best uh, Actor for Joker. And uh, uh, Renee Zellweger won for Judy, which has been a very underreported film. Although Brady Stanellis did call it at the beginning of the year that Joaquin Phoenix and Renee Zellweger would win for their respective performances in those two films. And it seems like he may be on track to be correct. So 
2019, it was a great year for film, especially in the fourth quarter of the year, where we had a bit of a slog throughout the summer. There were marginal hits uh, as far as uh, just receptive quality, I guess. Uh, you know, obviously, the box office, I think, has been on its trajectory. It's not going to change at this point. Endgame, Joker, these types of movies did very well, but these types of movies typically always do well. And I don't think that there's anything that can stop the the downward trend that we're facing. I was just looking at uh, the list of of uh, uh, commercial films to be uh, scheduled for release in 2020. Someone posted that in the Facebook group because I'm still prominent on Facebook for some reason. I'm one of the few people using it. But the Facebook page and the Facebook group keep growing and growing and growing. It's growing faster than Twitter and Instagram where uh, things... Just it, it makes me look irrelevant, really. But on Facebook, one of my guys in the low res gang group decided to post the 2020 slate, and I, I, it made me a little depressed, depressed and excited, because on one hand, you know, yes, we're getting movies like Doolittle, we're doing that again, and uh, I think there might be a new Fast and the Furious in there, something like that. But because these movies all seem terrible and of a certain ilk. It made me think, maybe this will finally be the year that it all just comes crashing down. Maybe this will be the end. I, I mean, one could hope. I'm not going to get too negative on this show, because again, this past year was an amazing comeuppance in several regards. And I was very pleased overall when it comes to cinema. One of the things that I, I've been trying to get at with this show and with my writing is that... Um, you know, there's a difference between a great movie and a great movie that has durability to it. Many great films fail to sustain a durability beyond the year of their release. 1979's Dennis Christopher-led Breaking Away, for example, topped many of that respective year's best-of lists and racked up several Academy Award nominations. Unfortunately, it is also one of the most forgettable or forgotten well-recognized films of the greatest decade for movies. Similarly, Tom Hooper's The King's Speech was hailed as a cinematic achievement in spite of lacking and really not being designed for any kind of repetitive value. It can be identified as the first of many films in this past decade to have been created sheerly for nominations and to win awards. With each subsequent year, we've seen a push made for these well-produced, overly-marketed awards vehicles, always bolstered by big media serfs and self-employed film critics desperately hoping to have their opinions taken seriously. As we've been dealt more of the same in this medium, my priorities as a filmgoer have shifted. What I look for most when I watch a movie is the ability to be consistently and thoroughly entertained on an intellectual level, ideally anyway. I want this to the point where I will need to watch the movie at least two more times to collect all of the data that it has to offer. Regardless of the rigid bounds that have been imposed to determine whether or not a movie is good, as far as I'm concerned, if the piece of filmmaking can provoke anything out of me as a viewer, then regardless of the quality or apparent flaws in that work, to some degree, what has been made has been a success. Despite having its creative choices mocked incessantly, Fred Durst, The Fanatic, is an example of this. Technically speaking, The Fanatic is a well-made film. Many have tried to liken it to be the, the newest incarnation of Tommy Wiseau's The Room, 
but it's not. It's not even in the same category as The Room or a Troll 2, for that matter. You know, if you want something on par with that that was released recently, check out Evening Installation. It's got Cookie of Ned's Declassified in it and some Russian or Swedish girl who clearly paid for the entire production. The only reason why I discovered this movie was because I was browsing IMDb and there was a giant banner and two side profile advertisements taken out for this movie. Evening installation. It is it is dreck. It is the worst thing you will watch uh, maybe ever. Uh, <clears throat> anyhow, so The Fanatic. It is a self-aware horror thriller with gaping issues related to plot and the abilities of its actors. The Fanatic attempts to use humor and interesting design schemes to cover those problems up and does so enough to create an enjoyable ride. The end result is a messy film with an admirable or some would argue laughable performance from John Travolta. It's a well-paced 88 minutes that does not stimulate the intellect of its audience but at least offers something in its visceral creativity to make the viewer wonder, what happened with this? A year ago, I had predicted that 2019 would be a rebound for movies. After taking note of the decline in general quality following 2013, I was half correct. Although the year did not produce a staggering number of game-changing films, those that did take a swing and succeeded made a significant impact on the popular cinematic climate. Now, originally, I was not going to read off 23 to 11 on my overarching list of 2019 films, but we're 10 minutes in, and I do want to give some notice to these quality films that did not make the the top 10 of the year. Uh, you know, I, I did want to leave it as a lowres.live exclusive, and you can just read the list right now in full, lowres.live slash 2019, if you'd like to bypass this entire episode. Uh, but uh, I'm just going to start. Number 23 is Paddleton, the Alexander Lehman film that was released to Netflix starring Ray Romano and Mark Duplass of the Duplass Brothers. This was a very quiet film. This was just nudged onto Netflix in the middle of the night. Nobody really seemed to notice it, but it was good. It was a good movie. Number 22 is Abel Ferreira's Pasolini, which starred Willem Dafoe as the titular character Pasolini. This was a very good movie. I saw this at the at the Metrograph uh, last year. And, uh, it, you know, Abel Ferreira, I won't say that he's fallen off. I think he's evolved as a director. And um, this movie was solid, but it's not what you would maybe expect from, from Abel Ferreira of years past. If you're a fan of his work from the 80s and 90s and 70s, uh, he's entered that point in his career where it seems like he's interested in doing more refined films, I guess you could say, and Pasolini would fall into that category. For some reason, it took years to get this movie released. It, it was finished in 2014. I think it got screened initially in 2015, but it didn't receive a theatrical uh, deal until just this past year. Very unusual. Number 21 is Relaxer by director Joel Petrokis, uh, who also did Buzzard, which was my top film of 2015, I believe the year was. That was a very funny, very good movie. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime right now. And he also did a movie between these two that did not feature uh, his lead, which I, I, I believe the guy's name is Joshua. Joshua Berg is the name of the actor. And he's got a very distinct face, very distinct type of charisma to him. He's a good leading man. He's the star of Buzzard 
and the star of Relaxer. This movie, again, is on Amazon Prime right now. You can check it out probably for free. And it's a fun uh, straight shot into the Y2K hysteria that was uh, in 1999. Number 20 is Jojo Rabbit, which really surprised me. I didn't expect to like this movie. I kind of hate watched it because I expected some kind of uh, very transparent whatever, you know. But I, I, I enjoy Taika Waititi and... Uh, uh, this movie was uh, very, very good. Surpassed my expectations. Uh, Scarlett Johansson's great in it. The lead child actor is wonderful. And uh, Taika Waititi does a very good job as uh, Adolf Hitler in that film. So, Number 19 is Harmony Korine's The Beach Bum, which was just a, a fun movie to watch. Number 18 is The Fanatic. Yes, The Fanatic, unironically, is number 18 on the list. I do believe it is one of the most enjoyable films to have been released in 2019. And uh, that's all there really is to it. Number 17 is The Farewell, directed by Lulu Wang. Number 16 is The Art of Self-Defense, directed by Riley Stearns. Number 15 is Knife and Heart, directed by Ian Gonzalez. Number 14 is The Lords of Chaos, directed by Jonas Ackerland. Number 13 is Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, directed by Joe Berlinger. Number 12 is Midsummer, directed by Ari Aster. And number 11, leading us up to 10, is The Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese, which you will not be able to watch in about three to four years because the CGI will look ridiculous. It's going to look like... Uh, it'll look like... Jeez, it'll probably... I mean, has anybody watched Terminator 2 recently? Somebody should probably go and George Lucas that movie, I'm thinking. I can't imagine the T-1000 looks as impressive as he did back in 1992 or 1 or whenever that movie was released. Sad times. So, a fairly strong year for horror and uh, bleak cinema all around. In retrospect, when we're looking back on 2019 as a landmark year for film, much like how we view 1989 and 1990, respectively, as big years for blockbusters, I think it will indeed be viewed as a, a dark chapter for pop culture at large. While television distanced itself further from its golden age and found comfort in a state of progressive decomposition, movies at least fought to maintain some kind of relevancy. Nobody could have imagined in the year 2006 that Martin Scorsese would release a film in a medium that serves as the modern equivalent to direct-to-video, or even that many of the frontrunners for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, a now antiquated ceremony that only serves to worship the ruling class and flaunt tactical politics, would come from that same source. And after struggling for years to put out worthwhile films, it seems that in 2019, Netflix finally found its footing. Many of the movies that cracked my top 30 were funded and or released by Netflix. This was a company that peaked with its first original film, Kari Fukunaga's Beasts of No Nation, and immediately swan-dived afterward. I refer to the Oscars as antiquated, but also made note that these kinds of films are finally being recognized by the Academy. Why is that? Seems contradictory. Award ceremonies are looked at as unnecessary by the general public. Film as a genre has grown stagnant. The box office has been facing a downward trajectory for some time, narrowing the field of wide releases almost exclusively to billion-dollar action figure and doll machines. On the surface, these matters should be looked at as irrelevant, yes, but they're not. 
The truth is, as much as we gripe about the Oscars or how much movies suck, or that the caliber of talent both in front of and behind the camera isn't up to snuff, this isn't something that most of us want to let go of. To quote a friend of mine, the director of uh, Coven, uh, Mark Borchardt, movies are important because we decide they're important. There's a power to the medium of film, much like there is a power found within the pages of a novel that is difficult to put into words. These are not things that can be replaced by personalities or short-form storytelling. Movies themselves are not dying, but maybe the way they have traditionally been made is, or is about to. If there were a time to evolve the medium and change the way that stories are told in film, it would be now. A different kind of movie may need to be constructed in order to enforce that inevitable return to relevance. There is something to be said about film being a communal experience and an exchange of energy and ideas between a filmmaker and their audience. Even if serialized and unscripted storytelling is more in vogue at the moment, it is too vast to be replaced. And here we are, the top 10 of 2019. Number 10 is Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho. Every armchair film critic in the West just discovered Korean cinema this year. My, how cultured you must have been to watch and enjoy Parasite. And yes, I'm being a snob right now. And I'm not, look, I'm not talking about the uh, YouTube critics that you listen to and you watch, okay? I'm talking about the people that primarily operate the mainstream media. Nobody cared about Korean film up until now, even with Old Boy. Nobody paid attention to Old Boy, okay? The, the film festivals loved Old Boy. Creeps at the video store loved Old Boy. You did not see Entertainment Tonight discussing Old Boy. To be clear, Parasite is a wonderful movie. When it was released in South Korea and I managed to receive a screener, it was a breath of fresh air. It couldn't have arrived at a more perfect time because to that point, much of the year's releases had left me dry. We don't have as many movies out in theaters as we do tulpas posing as movies. These things convince you in the moment that what you're watching is a legitimate film. And it takes about two weeks to realize that you got duped, that you'd been had. The thing you watched wasn't a film, it was a puppet show performed out of a cardboard box, and you got awed by the spectacle of it. Parasite has intentionally created a discourse about haves and have-nots that has been hijacked by the American press to feed into this eat-the-rich mentality, which, admittedly, the film is partially about. The way that I felt about this movie, simply due to the culture surrounding it, is probably the same way many critics have begrudgingly felt about Joker. You want to neg it because there is a distaste for those propping it up and why they are propping it up. But Parasite is too good to ignore. Even if Teen Vogue has a socialist agenda they're looking to push and somehow connect that to Parasite. Bong Joon-ho, as a filmmaker, is very hit and miss in my book. He is similar to Guillermo del Toro in that, from time to time, he just gets too big for his britches and winds up fumbling his films with ambition. Snowpiercer, Okja, The Host. You know, these movies specifically suffer from a desire to create an overwhelming, fantastical story without topographical bounds. Parasite is a very Korean film, and it speaks to the culture there using something that, in spite of location, we can all intrinsically relate to. What Parasite does best is critique not only the rich, but the working class, which is something that has been greatly overlooked in much of the commentary about this film. 
Number nine is Marriage Story, directed by Noah Baumbach. Imagine making a deeply personal film that is likely an allegory for your previous marriage. You get two of the most popular actors working to play surrogate versions of your ex-wife and yourself. You make a tremendous film, a worthy successor to Kramer vs. Kramer. And then the internet has its way with it, taking one scene with 55 seconds of overacting, 55 seconds that really should have been shaved off, and rendering your movie completely dismissible to a portion of the mainline audience. That is what is currently surrounding Marriage Story at the moment. Granted, the meme has died a little bit, but that, that, that essence of, ooh, this is theater kids pretending to act, is still surrounding the movie. Now, will that matter come time the Academy Awards? Of course not, no, because all the voters are really old and they don't really use the internet. You know, they're probably just learning what scumbag Steve memes are right about now. So Marriage Story is a frustrating film, and that is why it is a successful film. The relationship between Adam Driver's Charlie and Scarlett Johansson's Nicole is believable, and the differences between them that lead to the dissolve of their marriage touch on familiarities that can be found in any relationship. It makes the decisions that these characters make all the more infuriating to watch. The best performances in this movie come from those occupying supporting roles. Laura Dern steals the show, and if there is any justice, will be the frontrunner at the Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actress. She did just win the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, so I think you know she's basically a shoe-in at this point. Ray Liotta and Alan Alda also make the most of their limited screen time. Liotta is the effective shark you want in the courtroom when you're getting hammered. And Alda is the kind, warm blanket and a cup of tea offering attorney you would want to coddle you into accepting failure and immediate death. The level of talent in front of and behind the camera cannot be overstated. Number eight is Honey Boy, directed by Alma Harrell. Honey Boy is an exquisite character piece by director Alma Harrell and writer-slash-star Shia LaBeouf. It is a thinly-veiled biopic about LaBeouf's upbringing, living out of a run-down hotel room and dealing with an abusive father who can't seem to grow up or pull his life together. It's about the building of momentum as the star of the Disney Channel sitcom Even Stevens and how he has to adjust his life to this. It is a lot for a young child to endure and have to process, and this movie places LaBeouf's once-deteriorated mental state an obnoxious desire to be taken seriously as an actor into a better context. LaBeouf, like his fellow Disney Channel alum Ben Foster, for years had suffered from a case of being somewhat of an overactor. And like Ben Foster, it took Shia LaBeouf some time to grow into the version of himself that he'd been aching to be. Maybe hopping in and out of personalities had something to do with that, picking up aspects of himself he'd always wanted to embrace but never felt comfortable with until the veneer of that character gave him a chance to. He is one of our more fascinating and self-indulgent famous people, and yet, in Honey Boy, he not only gives the best performance of his career, but for the first time, fully disappears into the role of James, his father. Noah Droop's performance is also not to be understated as LaBeouf or Otis in this film, the child actor at the center of the story. Joop is required to carry significant weight in Honey Boy, and he does not falter for a second. With the exception of FKA Twigs, whose role in fairness does not require much of her, or I mean really, she barely speaks, every actor in this movie is firing on all cylinders. Number seven is Josh and Benny Safdie's Uncut Gems. 
Good Time was my number one film of 2017. I was so impressed by the Safdie's ability to create or recreate a visual New York texture that felt authentic that it easily won me over. Good Time was something to be injected into modern film almost for the sake of New York City's place as a Western character. For almost 20 years, it had been sterilized by a bright and shining green vision that was propagandized by trust fund writers in the late aughts and early tens. I am thoroughly convinced that the New York City you have seen in Sex and the City and Lena Dunham's Girls may have never really existed to begin with, and if it had, it didn't last for long. New York is what it's always been, a grimy, crime-filled city, and that is exactly how it should be portrayed. Uncut Gems is a worthy successor to Good Time, although it does fall short of harnessing the energy captured in that 2017 film. It offers what is undoubtedly Adam Sandler's best and most fun and also most stressful performance of his career. Moreover, it gives character actors Eric Bogosian and Judd Hirsch a chance to shine on the big screen for the first time in what feels like decades. What the Safties perhaps do best as directors is create an ensemble of clashing characters often played by actors you'd have never expected and use them to build a fleshed-out and realistic world. Number six is another low-key film, Climax, directed by Jasper Noel. Climax was not a film that sold me in its opening 15 to 20 minutes. As a matter of fact, I was ready to shut it off after taking note of the artificial home entertainment system set up around a television screen that subtly advertised a recommended viewing guide constructed by Noel. In the, in the written piece where I wrote about Climax, I said, don't do this. And I would strongly recommend you don't do this, even if you're Jasper No. But if, you're, if you are to do this, maybe maybe be, be more discreet about it. I don't, I don't shove it in my face right at the start of the movie, where, you, where it's literally that. It's not like, well, this is an homage. This is Tarantino stealing a scene from one of his favorite kung fu films. It's literally just like, here's a videotape of Taxi Driver in Suspiria. Check those out. Please don't do that. I also struggled to get through an opening of fairly boring forced character development, giving us a glimpse of mostly redundant Jarmusch-esque conversations between characters. Everything after that, though, is gravy. The premise of Climax is, what if there was a dance party where someone spiked the punch bowl with acid? It's a stripped-down concept for a film. And outside of the usual Jasper No angles and camera tricks, which are, are great here, the visuals are not explored beyond lighting, shot lengths, and basic cinematography, which I actually commend him for. He chose not to indulge, and if he had, then it would have weakened the film. But as is, Climax is beautiful to look at in a very nauseating way. Climax captures the night out feeling better than most other films especially those that unfold in real time, as this movie does. A large portion of the film occurs within a single shot, and it allows No to convey a building sense of dread that feels more and more authentic the longer the film runs. By the end of the movie, what you're left with is disgust for the events within the story and admiration for No as a filmmaker for what he has accomplished in 96 minutes. Number five is Under the Silver Lake directed by David Robert Mitchell. Under the Silver Lake is A24's strongest release of the year, which was dumped quietly on streaming after being held in containment by executives for over two years. 
It didn't even get an authentic Blu-ray release. I'm pretty sure they did blue, like Blu-ray R or something. One of those uh, on-demand Blu-ray printing things that they do for like CBS reality shows. Kind of sad. This is David Robert Mitchell's odd and unlikely follow-up to his 2016 horror film, It Follows. Admittedly, when the project was announced and the trailer initially dropped online, I was not very interested. I reluctantly downloaded a pirated copy of the film and early this year opted to throw it on while spending the night at my girlfriend's. She fell asleep midway through, and I finished it having found aspects that I respected, but overall, my impression of the film was that it was just kind of whatever. Fast forward approximately 48 hours, and I started to get the reverse of that tulpa effect that I had mentioned before. Rather than exiting the movie and gradually feeling like I had eaten a styrofoam hamburger, there was a kernel of something left in my brain that informed me that I was wrong and that I had to go back. This is not the first time that this has happened. It has occurred many times in the past with pieces of art that I would eventually grow to love. For example, Twin Peaks or The Life of Pablo. There's, there's plenty of others. And so I watched it again. My appreciation for Under the Silver Lake grew remarkably, and I was able to enjoy its subversive nature more than I had on a sleepy first viewing. The idea of an acclaimed low-budget filmmaker being granted the keys to the Hollywood kingdom thanks entirely to his unusual financial hit, and upon entry, choosing to make this particular film is, to me, fascinating. Andrew Garfield is an unlikable yet charismatic protagonist who makes all sorts of socially taboo discoveries and never really winds up satisfied with what he finds. It's a powerful statement on the unfortunate nature of accomplishing your goals. Number four is The Standoff at Sparrow Creek, which I believe was the first movie I had seen in theaters in 2019. This movie is directed by Henry Dunham, who is a first-time writer-director Henry Dunham made an impressive debut with the standoff at Sparrow Creek, City State's first independent feature without S. Craig Zoller's name attached. The standoff at Sparrow Creek is a marvelous, tense film in vein of Reservoir Dogs. I caught it at a tiny theater in New York City to a crowd of approximately 12 people. It was released the same day as streaming, and perhaps directly because of that, drifted below the radar. Now that the year is done, and we're in 2020, I don't see too many people talking about this film and that is much less than what it deserves. Dunham's Sparrow Creek is a taut crime thriller about a militia that falls into the spotlight following a mass shooting at a police funeral. Similar to Under the Silver Lake, Sparrow Creek explores a number of current social taboos, and in typical city state fashion, blurs the lines between good guys and bad guys effectively. The story not only legitimizes the prospect of a potential necessity in having militias in the face of a police state, but pushes the idea of authorities framing situations to break their ethical guardrails for the public safety. It's an intriguing notion that dances through false flag territory and winds up somewhere in Waco. I find it interesting that this film not only skated in the mainstream press, but received mostly positive reviews, given the flack that Cine State's other major 2019 release, Dragged Across Concrete, received for being far less inflammatory. Where are you going? I'm going to Chatsworth. Chatsworth? <laughs> you hitch up and down Burbank Boulevard all day till someone says they'll drive you to Chatsworth? Tourists love to drive me. 
I'm their favorite part of their LA vacation. You know, they'll be telling stories about Hollywood, hippie girl, that they can't ride to the movie ranch for the rest of their lives. Wait, Spawn Movie Ranch? Yeah. That's where you're going, Spawn Movie Ranch. Uh-huh. Well, why are you going there? I live there. Alone? No. Me and my friends. So, you and a bunch of friends like you all live at Spawn Movie Ranch? Number three is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of Quentin Tarantino's softer films. It feels like a break from everything that has come before and a swan song for the director, in spite of insisting that he has two more films left in him, plus whatever comes of that Star Trek installment he's working on. Is he even going to direct that? I don't know if he's just writing and coming up with the story. Who cares? That, that, that whole series is dead as far as I'm concerned. It's the ultimate character piece, a cultural statement, and a fairy tale rolled into one. This film not only possesses Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's best performances respectively, but generally also has some of the strongest acting of any Tarantino film. By stripping away the excessive action and violence that has become his hallmark, Quentin Tarantino has given his characters room to marinate and come into their own even more than what we've grown accustomed to from him as a filmmaker. It's almost as if Tarantino posed a question to himself as to whether or not he could make an outstanding film that was as triumphant as those of his past without allowing for a consistent thread of what arguably most people have come to recognize him for, outside of lengthy conversational dialogue and aping iconography, of course. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, for all accounts, an enormous success. It's like jumping into the world of a novel and approximately hopping out after two hours and change. I would love to see this movie walk away with Best Picture at the Academy Awards this year. I think there's a chance of that. For whatever reason, with the Golden Globes, 1917 came away the the big victor, with Sam Mendes winning Best Director and that winning Best Picture. If there were a year for these two ceremonies to fall separate. And I have looked at back at the past decade. I'm pretty sure roughly six times out of the, the nine, uh, they wound up being in sync with one another. But there, there were the three occasions, and they were somewhat recently, where the Best Picture winner at uh, the Golden Globes and the Best Picture winner at the Academy Awards were two separate things, or, or not the, the designated front runner leading up to that. If there were a year for that to happen, I think it would be this year. It's because there are so many strong contenders in the running right now. Where it could go to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it could go to The Irishman, it could go to Parasite, it could go to Joker. Nobody really knows. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. And personally, I'm rooting for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two is Dragged Across Concrete. You're losing perspective and compassion. There's a reason. I'm sitting behind this desk running things. And you're out there with a partner that's 20 years younger than you. Hey, Anthony's got a mouth with his own engine, but he's solid. I'm thinking about the kind of future I can offer my girlfriend. Pops is a yesterday who ain't worth words. Good heavens and praise be to him. Your absence was a weight upon us. Thank you, Mr. Edmonton. I don't like doing things with so many question marks everywhere. There's a lot of imbeciles out there.
It's all cotton candy. and the right to acquire proper compensation. As Craig Zoller is one of the most subversive directors working with money behind him. After back-to-back home runs with the niche western horror Bone Tomahawk and the pulpy Vince Vaughn-led Brawl and Cell Block 99, Zoller has produced his masterpiece. But this is not an easy film to get through. Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn star as a couple of rule-bending cops who get suspended without pay for, all things considered, a very light case of police brutality. Both of the men, but particularly Gibson's character, Brett Ridgman, are besmirched by the media and find themselves in a hole due to mounting medical expenses as a result of a condition that Ridgman's wife is suffering from and a well-planned engagement on behalf of Vince Vaughn's character. He wants to get married to his girlfriend. Uh, uh, this film offers the opposite end of the coin that the standoff at Sparrow Creek presents to its audience and illustrates a specific case in which conveniences should have been taken to prevent an otherwise inevitable tragedy from occurring. If you haven't seen the film, you know we talked about it on this show before, Jacob A. Miller and myself, There's a scene in which there is a bank robbery, and the bank robbery does not go as intended, and it gets very violent. Sitting and watching that in the theater, it was one of the most tense and frustrating scenes in a movie, maybe, that I've ever seen. The violence in this movie is fast, harsh, and far from fun, but you wouldn't know that that is what you're in for based off of the opening 30 minutes. On the surface, it seems as if Dragged across concrete may have a pacing problem. Things feel a little slow, but it's not until the central issue of the story ignites that you understand the importance of spending time with the characters the way that Zoller intended. The film manages to build such great stakes for Ridgman, Lurisetti, which is Vince Vaughn, and a third-party character thrown into the mix, Henry, played by Tori Kittles, that it becomes impossible to take your eyes off the screen. Zoller does an amazing job of creating intensely unlikable antagonists with limited means. It nudges the audience to recognize that evil does exist, and it's not necessarily the familiar undesirables we frequently come to know in day-to-day life. Number one. Ooh, ooh, what could number one be? I, hmm, the suspense is killing me. Uh, Number one is Joker, directed by Todd Phillips. Who's there? It's the police, ma'am. Your son's been hit by a drunk driver. He's dead. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. No, you cannot joke about that. Yeah, that's not funny, Arthur. That's not the kind of humor we do on this show. Okay. I'm... Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just, you know, it's been a rough few weeks, Murray. (laughs) Ever since I... Killed those three Wall Street guys. Okay, I'm waiting for the punchline. There's no punchline. It's not a joke. You're serious, aren't you? You're telling us you killed those three young men on the subway? Mm-hmm. And why should we believe you? 
got nothing left to lose. Nothing can hurt me anymore. <laughs> My life is nothing but a comedy. Well, let me get this straight. You think that killing those guys is funny? I do. And I'm tired of pretending it's not. Comedy is subjective, Marie. Isn't that what they say? All of you, the system that knows so much, you decide what's right or wrong the same way that you decide what's funny or not. Okay, I, I think I, I might understand that you did this to start a movement, to become a, a symbol. Come on, Murray. Do I look like the kind of clown that could start a movement? There are three kinds of people that critique Todd Phillips' Joker. There are those that rave about it, those that dismiss it, and those that enjoyed it but don't feel it's appropriate to hold it in high regard, either due to the controversy, the director being Todd Phillips, or the fact that it is a comic book film. Although I would also throw into the mix those that just see it as a knockoff of the King of Comedy and Taxi Driver and don't want to uh, give, it, give it its due on its own as a film, specifically for that reason. Time will hopefully weed out those last categories of individual from the conversation surrounding this movie, because to put it simply, Joker is phenomenal. It is a perfect snapshot of the era that we are in and will be remembered as such. Above that, it is a remarkable piece of filmmaking. As I watched Joker, I kept waiting for that moment where I'd be pulled out and reminded that this is a comic book film. The closest we really come to that is the Wayne family. Thomas Wayne, Bruce Wayne, uh, seeing a chubby Ricky Gervais-esque looking Alfred the Butler. But that's about it. And that's that's hardly a crime in this film. I'm sitting in the theater and I'm waiting for that moment, that insert that can undo everything that we've seen and build a billion dollar extended universe around this movie. But it never came. I left the theater wholly satisfied. Two weeks later, I still felt satisfied. A month later, I still felt satisfied. Upon my second, third, fourth viewings of this film, nothing had changed. In no way, shape, or form does the fact that Joker is based upon a comic book property ever impair it. It may as well have come out of the Tim Burton Batman era because of that. Todd Phillips as a director is a very competent technician. You can take a look at Hated, his documentary on Gigi Allen, Brad House, an unreleased HBO special, or even his second most recent film, War Dogs, and it is evident that Phillips has talent behind the camera. Making films that are intended to be taken lightly, like the Hangover trilogy and Old School, does not make for an unserious person or artist. You can make the argument that it is talent squandered, but the talent itself is unquestionable, even if the nature of his last two films sucked the teat of Scorsese hard. Joker is transparent about its influences and doesn't latch to them as much as you might expect. It uses those influences as tools to inform its own story, setting, and characters, like any good film should. Quite obviously, Joaquin Phoenix shines above the rest to give a career-defining performance as Arthur Fleck. He is pitiful, frustrating, relatable, and somebody to absolutely get behind and root for, because it's a movie. 
And if you can't root for the bad guys in movies, where can you root for them? So that is my list of the top 10 films of 2019. It's not going to change. You're not going to convince me otherwise. Yeah, maybe I'll watch Pain and Glory, and I'll have to retroactively put that as number nine or something. But I feel very, very good about this list of 10 films. It's very solid. I did not do a best of list last year. So I'm thinking about just maybe adding that on at the last minute right now to read off my top films of 2018, since movies was going on at that time, and I have no excuse for not doing an episode on my best films of that year. So let's let's get into that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about all these films at length, okay? I'm just gonna read them off. Maybe I'll add a little insert about X, Y, or Z movie, but I'm starting to get a raspy voice, and I need my rest because I'm an old man now. So 2018 was an okay year. It wasn't as good as 2017 on the whole. Actually, you know what? I might take that back. I think it might be equal to 2017, but 2017 was a very impressive year. One of the best years of the decade for movies. 2013 was probably the best overall. 2013, 2017, 2018, 2019. All very good years. So, uh, number one for 2018 was Paul Schrader's first reform. He is crazy. He is a nut. He keeps trying to call for the revolution on Facebook. It happens every three weeks or so. You'll get a, a post on his Facebook page, his fan page that he runs himself. And he will say, it's time to take up arms. It's happening. Why is the FBI at my door? This guy's crazy. One of the best things that he inadvertently ever produced was that article on the Canyons, that movie, The Canyons, he did with Brett Easton Ellis and Lindsay Lohan and James Dean. Remember James Dean, the porn star that every girl on Tumblr lusted over until he, he got accused of uh, you know rubbing his fingers under his ball sack and then putting that under some girl's nose, doing something like that? That's rape now, I guess. Anyhow, First Reformed, wonderful movie. Ethan Hawke is excellent in it. There's a couple of cheesy moments that especially don't hold up on repeat viewings, but it's a great movie. Number two is You Are Never Really Here by Lynn Ramsey's. I'm going to be talking about this movie with Jake Hanrahan on our first proper episode of 2020. And this was a movie that he was not really into at first. I said, Jake, you got to check this movie out. It is, it's... It's wild. It's a great film. Joaquin Phoenix is excellent. This was before Joker, by the way, which he's obsessed with. He's going around in clown makeup, you know, hanging out in Afghanistan or whatever he does. Uh, you were never really here, though. Wonderful film. Beautifully shot. Very feminine kind of action movie. It's weird. Three Identical Strangers. This documentary is nuts. This movie, ooh, ooh. I watched it. I got stuck on the runway. In Florida, I was trying to get out of there, and uh, I was watching Three Identical Strangers on that little TV, and I was hooked. I, I didn't want the plane to take off ever until that movie was done. Great, great documentary. I, if you really want to see what true evil is in this world, take a look at that. That is a startling film. Uh, number four is Mandy by uh, my, my Greek brethren, uh, Panos Kosmos. Uh, who, who fucking cares? Stupid, dumb Greek last name. Can't pronounce shit. Sorry, I'm being vulgar now. I, I don't like swearing. So, Mandy is a, a visually stunning film. Everybody loves Mandy. Uh, it, it, you know, the opening to that movie and the second half of that movie, it's like two different films entirely. Number five is The House That Jack Built, Lars von Trier's best film 
in my opinion. At least best film since Breaking the Waves. And I was a big fan of Lymphomaniac Volumes 1 and 2. This is also a career-defining performance by Matt Dillon. I was fortunate enough to see Matt Dillon introduce the film at uh, some theater in New York. I don't, I don't remember which one, but it, it was a great time. This movie is so funny, too. Lars at his best here. Number six is Hereditary by Ari Aster. What hasn't been said about that movie? Hmm? Number seven is the underrated Sicario sequel. I think this movie might be superior to the original Sicario film, even though I adored Denny Villeneuve. Sicario, Day of the Soldado. This movie... So if Sicario 1 was like a statement on the nature of government, politics, and war, I feel like a lot of that message carries over to Day of the Soldado. But uh, the the key difference between these two films is um, you have have a a, uh, protagonist in Sicario that is not down with the mission. She's just kind of uh, a stick in the mud. She's like, oh, why are you doing this? Stop doing this. Uh, And then she cries for like 23 minutes. And Sicario, too, it's just the boys. The boys are out having fun. We got our guns. We're going to start killing some terrorists. And then Benicio gets caught in the crosshairs and things get rough for him. And it's a good time. You know, I saw this in a little tiny theater. I was the only person in the theater, my my girlfriend and myself. And, uh, you know, the, the sound system was crazy. It was wonderful. Great movie. Uh, and I, I highly suggest you check it out if you haven't, if you've been skeptical, if you enjoyed the first Sicario and thought, oh, why would, why would they do a sequel to that? Uh, I believe Taylor Sheridan wrote the script to this one as well, and it is a very good movie. Number eight is White Boy Rick. White Boy Rick is another movie that is not discussed. It's not talked about. It's a film that just kind of got shuffled off to theaters and ignored. Matthew McConaughey's got a, you know, he's in, he's in a weird point in his career where the the peak has ceased, right? Where where he did uh, True Detective, he did Dallas Buyers Club, and then he got Interstellar afterward. And he's just kind of done not as good movies. But White Boy Rick is, I mean, it, it's it's Matthew McConaughey chewing scenery for, for 90 to 120 minutes with an interesting enough story that I think got negative reviews in the press because it didn't fit the kind of narrative that they wanted to push as far as how police work and just the, the general message of the film. But it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile viewing, in my opinion, White Boy Rick. And just the story of that in general is, is depressing. Number nine was Black Klansman. This is not a movie that I would probably put in my top 10 if I were to rearrange it now. Just because I have watched Black Klansman since I initially saw it in theaters. I'm a big fan of Spike Lee. I enjoy Spike Lee's work from the early 90s and late 80s, especially that kind of style that he developed that has become, for the most part, null and void as he has entered his late 60s. But this Black Klansman movie felt like a taste of that. Parts of the awful Netflix show, She Gotta Have It, also felt like that old school Spike Lee, but Black Klansman especially. And when I did see it in theaters, I enjoyed it immensely. I watched it at home, and that definitely faded. I was like, is this, is this a bad movie? Did I get four, did I, 
I think this movie sucks. Oh, no. That was my reaction. Number 10 is American Animals, which was another low-key crime flick that did not get much attention. It was one of, I think, AMC theaters, whatever their program was, like Movie Pass or something. Uh, one of those companies distributed this film. It was very good. It was very good. I don't really have a whole lot to say about it, though. And I, you know what? I'm going to throw in number 11 just because Black Klansman, it feels like an inauthentic number nine now. Number 11 was Thunder Road, Jim Cummings' film, which is entirely uh, just, it's a showcase for Jim Cummings. In a lot of ways, I kind of feel as if it is a, uh, I I don't want to say it's ego-driven or a vanity piece, but it, it has a lot of him. I mean, it's him. It's all him. But that's not a bad thing. That can be a very good thing at times. I am a big fan of Buffalo 66 and the Brown Bunny. Vincent Gallo is one of my one of my main guys as a filmmaker. Uh, Takashi, the Takashi uh, Kitano, another great filmmaker. He does the same thing over and over and over again. It's just him being a cool guy in a movie, shooting guns, being an asshole, slapping women around. But he does it well. The movies are good. And Thunder Road falls in that territory. I would love to see another Jim Cummings film where he plays a different character. Uh, And it was one of the better comedies to have come out last year. So that is my top 11 of 2018. We have all of our bases covered now. Should I read 2017? I'm not going to read 2017. 2017 is very good as well. 2017 was a great year. Maybe I should read 2017. Maybe I'll save that for like a bonus podcast or something. All right, guys, this has been Movies. I can't wait to get back to the regular schedule with you. I have many episodes clocked in already because the truth of the matter is I'm going to have a hard time keeping up with things as I am filming my my debut. Sorry, I just hit the remote with my coffee mug. That probably doesn't sound too pleasant on the microphone. I, I'm going to be you know, juggling quite a bit with this directorial debut of mine that I have coming out. And I also just got signed to star in something that is not going to be mine that I have to go out to LA for, for two or three weeks. We'll see, but more on that later. It's going to be, it's 2020 is going to be a very big year. And I have six episodes in the can already. We're talking about once upon a time in Hollywood. We're talking about Joker. We're talking about, you were never really here. We're talking about more Joker it was the number one movie of the year for me. I got to have at least two episodes on it. We recorded an episode right after the movie came out that we've been holding on to because I, I, I didn't want to put an episode out where we're all raving about Joker. And then a couple of months later, we don't feel that way anymore, right? Because I, I, th- that has been the case many times, many times in the past. The tulpas that I've discussed, they are frequent and common. There's another episode to be had that was recorded only recently where I watched the movie for a fourth time on 4k H HD ultra HD Blu-ray on my new TV. And I have new things to say about the film. So I will probably be releasing those back to back and uh, that that'll kick off 2020. Okay. If you've made it to this point, I recommend you go over to facebook.com slash This is where I hang out the most. Because, again, I'm an old man. I use Facebook. Everybody has Facebook. But we also have a new Discord for private conversations, for saying naughty things, 
for 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 uh, text bubbles that will be leaked in the press in 2024 when Hans makes it big and gets on SNL and then gets Shane Gillis. We have a Discord channel. The link is going to be in the description of this episode. And also, last but not least, if you guys could join me over on Patreon, where you will get exclusive episodes of all of my visual series like Glue Addict and Comfort Systems, which just wrapped up its first season only a couple of weeks ago. We had Ashton Tate as the special guest star. And I met with Ashton Tate recently in New York. He was in town for the holidays. Very interesting guy. I'd like to get him on this show at some point because he seems very well versed in screenwriters, especially, which you don't really see too often. Usually people are fanboying over directors or actors, screenwriters, the the unsung artists of the industry. Anyhow, join me on patreon.com slash lowres. $1, $5, you will get exclusive content, hours of content you're not going to find anywhere else. And also the best versions of everything, because I can just upload the master files there and not compress it so iTunes has uh, uh, all the episodes listed and I can keep up with bills and, you know, it gets complicated financially. You know, all these things add up. And helping out on Patreon solves that problem pretty efficiently. Last but not least, I am intending to drop some merch and announce potentially a new clothing line in general within the next couple of months. Uh, something that will be outside of everything that I have done on YouTube, really, and just more film-centric, because I feel like there's a there's an avenue there for uh, film attire that I'm seeing specifically on like Instagram and whatnot, uh, a market that can be tapped into, is, and that you know I would have fun with. I, I enjoy making designs. A lot of the time, I'm just sitting around designing rooms like a weirdo on my computer. I take a like a screenshot from Ikea. And then I just build a room up. You know, I, what, what could I be doing instead? Making movie posters, making t-shirt designs, sweater designs, Blu-ray covers. You know, I could be doing something else. So that is what I'm going to be doing in my downtime. And uh, hopefully you guys will be hearing about that soon. It's still in the early stages, but I would like to get something up and running. And uh, specifically concentrate on more niche cinema uh, sometime within the next couple of months. At the very least, a website and an Instagram page for that. Anyway, this has been Movies. Again, audibletrial.com slash lowres if you would like to get an Audible free trial. Listen to some books. Easy Riders and Raging Bulls is a good film book if you want to uh, investigate the new Hollywood era of filmmaking and learn about how Peter Bogdanovich was a terrible husband and father and just abandoned his family for Sybil Shepard, who I think was underage at the time while they were filming The Last Picture Show. Great book. Very informative book. Also, uh, helped me build a, a a newfound respect for Dennis Hopper, specifically, who effectively <laughs> um, uh, poisoned the waters at a Hollywood uh, studio. I think it was Universal back in 1980 or 1979 with the last picture. Uh, that was going to be his Heaven's Gate, essentially. And people don't really talk about that as much as they talk about Heaven's Gate, how much money was lost on that critical failure. But... People have come around to that movie as of late. People enjoy the work of Dennis Hopper. And he is a good director. He's a good filmmaker. And just an interesting personality in general. His trajectory is one to be studied. Because he's a big drug addict. He was a, he was a huge uh, pothead, cokehead, probably a heroin addict. Uh, messing around with all kinds of psilocybin. 
acid, I'm sure, and wasting rich people's money. What a hero. Love Dennis Hopper. Anyway, again, this has been Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. Thank you for listening.